Hello, I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is about thinking ahead to the opportunities and challenges beyond the emergency response to the pandemic. It's about bringing forward a variety of perspectives and ideas to reinvigorate our economy, enhance institutions, and to make better policy choices. Democracy is a constant work in progress in need of special attention, especially during moments of crisis. The pandemic has seen some states coordinate efforts with careful attention to individual rights, while others have taken advantage of the centralization of power for other ends. How permeable are democracies in times of crisis? How are democratic practices and institutions being tested? Which countries will emerge more resilient and which will struggle? Today at the Recovery Project, we have the pleasure of hearing from the Honourable Stéphane Dion, the Prime Minister's Special Envoy to the European Union and Europe, and Canada's Ambassador to Germany. Prior to his current appointment, Mr. Dion has held a variety of cabinet positions, including Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of the Environment, Minister Responsible for Official Languages, and Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs during critical moments for Canada's unity. He was also the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada and became the leader of the official opposition. Prior to his entry into politics, Monsieur Dion was a professor, having taught at l'Université de Moncton and l'Université de Montréal. Ambassador, welcome. Great pleasure to be with you. So we're here today to talk about this broad theme of democracy and certainly democracy in a time like this pandemic, where things are uncertain, where countries, some are struggling, um, some are uh, still grappling with the health crisis, while others um, are trying to reopen, right, and, and recover economically, socially, and certainly from a health perspective as well. Can you tell us a bit about how the pandemic has challenged standard democratic processes and practices? And I'm thinking here of everything from basic legislative deliberation, actually having parliaments convened, to individual rights. Uh, you see, when there is a pandemic, people are willing, most people, and I would say reasonable people, are willing to accept some constraints on their rights, uh, limitation of rights of assembly, uh, mobility rights. Uh, they, they understand that, and they, they are ready to accept it. Uh, in a democracy, they will accept it as long as they have confidence that the government will not keep these restrictions longer than needed. So the very moment it's not needed, it will disappear and we'll come back to the full rights that we need to enjoy. I think that's something most people will find reasonable uh, because uh, the, the principle in the liberal democracy is that uh, your rights stop where where start my nose? Uh, that, that's the what our mothers are telling us when you, we are kids. Uh, and, and so, uh, as long as there is a public reason, uh, reasons linked to the public good, uh, to have some restrictions, people will understand. Uh, and democracy is needed to be, make sure that it will st stick there. It will not go through uh, r uh, limitations that are uh, using the pandemic as a pretext, as a, an excuse uh, to limit rights beyond that, in order to give a grab to to power for for the uh, for the 
dictatorship. So that, that is something that I think we may say that up to now, our government has been very careful uh, to look at. But they need to continue to do so, to do it between themselves as a special envoy for Europe and ambassador in Germany. I think it would be good for Canada to exchange our practice, to, to compare uh, with what is happening in Europe, uh, to make sure that in Canada and everywhere in Europe, these restrictions are limited to what it is needed to fight the pandemic. Mr. Ambassador, I'd like to pick up on, on a few of those points that you've raised just now, certainly this issue of temporary restrictions or temporary limitations on rights. And I think in federal states, especially like Canada, like Germany, are there unique governance challenges or, or opportunities in these particular uh, contexts where, where situations are dynamic and things are changing? What happens in these states? Is it different than, you know, unitary states or other forms? I think the similarity between Canada and Germany is that uh, governments made sure that they would consult the opposition uh, and uh, they would work very closely, the national governments would work very closely uh, with the lender in Germany and the provinces and, and territories in Canada. Uh, that has been felt as a necessity uh, in order to make sure that the nation itself, uh, German or Canadian, is working together uh, to fight and to win against the virus. Uh, that's, the, I think, uh, something that we have seen. Um, it's, it's been difficult at the beginning uh, within uh, member states in the European Union and between them. Uh, and it took some time to learn to work collectively. I think it's understandable because uh, crisis linked to health issues, uh, combine both very local aspects and global aspects. Global because the virus doesn't know any border, so you, we need to have a global uh, understanding of the problem. Global because the virus needs to be fought uh, with a vaccine and medication, and for that we need to pull together all our resources and our, our knowledge. Uh, but local, because health um, treatments um, is very local. It is in which hospital? In each hospital. It, it is between each uh, doctor and his patients or her patients. Uh, it, it is this kind of very local aspect that explains why it has been difficult uh, to come right away uh, with a very cohesive collective effort. Uh, within a country, you have some regions or cities or towns that are very affected and others that are not. So it's very difficult to come with a very well-synchronized policy uh, to affect it. It has been the case in Canada, has been the case in Germany, in Italy, where uh, the pandemic has been awful in the north of the country and took uh, more time to reach the south. Um, under the circumstances, uh, the uh, national governments had difficulties at the beginning and the EU in the uh, European Union had very difficulties to coordinate the efforts of uh, everyone, especially in a situation that is, was completely new, uh, without precedent, uh, and where uh, governments, the uh, 
health authorities themselves were uh, uncertain about how to deal with the problem. And still today, you have a lot of uncertainties. What is working? What is not working? You may remember in many countries at the beginning, uh, with the World Health um, Association saying the same, we are not sure if the mask is needed. Today, we know the mask is needed. It should have been required at the very beginning. But it's easy to criticize after the fact. So I would say that both in Germany and in Canada, it was a learning curve that has been done uh, with a lot of um, openness from the people and governments. I think you've certainly helped to frame and highlight the the challenges and the complexities of different orders and different levels of government engaging in this very same issue. Oftentimes, orders that might be accustomed to working perhaps more independently, especially when you you discussed the global implications for local realities and the like. So we know that countries are responding and managing the crisis differently. How are some countries taking advantage of the centralization of powers for crisis response that you had alluded to that are meant to be short term? How, what are some countries doing to, to advance other agendas by leveraging this circumstance? Oh, you have seen that in some countries indeed where there is the sense that the pandemic is an opportunity for them, uh, for, for, for some governments, uh, to grab more powers for themselves uh, beyond the, the pandemic. That's a big concern that Canada has. Uh, it's an issue in the, within the EU. It's why uh, some uh, EU member states uh, try to uh, negotiate uh, in their budget uh, agreement that they reached yesterday after a painful, long uh, negotiation, uh, they tried to incorporate in their budget agreement the rule that when a country, the government of a country, is infringing on the rule of law, on the uh, freedom of people, uh, on, on the independence of the courts, uh, then uh, it would be possible to decrease the funding that this government is receiving. So the funding would be uh, conditional to uh, respect for the rule of law. And they, they fail because in order to put this provision in the agreement, uh, one would need to find the unanimity support of the 27 member states. And the uh, member states that are creating some trouble regarding the rule of law, of course, um, said that they don't want to hear about that. So uh, we know that one concern, for example, was in Hungary, where uh, the government uh, gave to itself the power to govern uh, without a, a supervision of parliament, uh, without uh, a clause, a sunset clause, uh, and it, there was the concern that it would, would be forever. And they took this opportunity to limit rights far beyond uh, the uh, far, far beyond the, the pandemic, the needs to fight the, the virus, um, especially about rights for minorities, uh, LGBT minorities. And this is a concern for the EU and for Canada in our in our uh, relationship with the government of Hungary. It's something we need to raise. So you see, I give this example, but other examples may come in mind. And many countries around the world don't have uh, the luxury to be part of an institution like the EU that is helping to limit this kind of problems. But uh, most countries are run by non-democratic governments in our world. 
And uh, a pandemic may be an opportunity for them to grab even more powers than what they have today. And certainly, so those those shifts in politics and those shifts in practice can be very dangerous, especially from an institutional perspective, where we oftentimes discuss the tendency of institutions to persist on their established path. Do you think that pandemic responses will fundamentally and permanently change democratic institutions and practices? Difficult to, to know. Um, there are a lot of uncertainties. One of them is, does it mean the end of what we call globalization? I don't think it will be the case. I think uh, no country may afford to be alone. You cannot be independent about everything. But certainly, uh, the uh, relationships between trade and rights will be strengthened. Uh, when uh, Canada and the EU has to negotiate uh, with an, uh, another country, where the government is not respecting basic human rights, it will be more difficult than in the past, I would say, uh, to agree about trade agreements. Uh, even between us, we'll need to make sure that our trade agreements uh, will respect uh, basic needs and rights uh, more than in the past. That the provisions for uh, labor rights, for women rights, uh, for, uh, of course, the environment and climate change, for uh, food security, health uh, security, uh, will be strengthened. I'm confident that it that will not mean that you will see less relationships between governments. If you remember what happened after uh, 2001, uh, the, uh, the attacks uh, uh, against the U.S. towers in, in, the, in the United States, uh, what you have seen in the years after were a considerable strengthening of the protections for transportation, especially, of course, uh, air transportation. And we did it. We learned that we need to put out our shoes before going on a plane and so on. And we did it. And it did not stop transportation and uh, air transportation uh, to, to, to increase considerably uh, over these years. So we have learned to have more security, but also more trade, more exchanges between populations, more mobility. And I think it will be the same now about health security. We'll have to strengthen considerably our health security, but I don't think it will prevent human beings to meet human beings around the world. So really, this is about the, the resiliency of institutions and their ability to reset and the ability for relationships to reconstitute and even at a global level, perhaps galvanize, um, given the, uh, the activities and certainly the cooperation between a, you know, a number of states that we've had to see in response to this pandemic. Yes, and a lot of the, a lot of, as I said before in our discussion, Elena, uh, a lot of the solutions will not be to close the borders. It will be to learn to work better together, to find better ways to work together. Uh, whether it, let's say for the, the virus, to find a medication or a vaccine, of course, you need an international cooperation. Once you found it, you need to make sure that this vaccine will reach human beings everywhere. It cannot be done if we don't cooperate. So I strongly believe that the international cooperation will be enhanced by this crisis and will learn to avoid the mistakes we have done in the past. 
as the as the Prime Minister's special envoy to the European Union and to Europe, uh, and Canada's ambassador in Germany, you have an incredible perspective on a number of countries, their operations, their politics, the states of their democracy, their responses. Can you help us unpack European country responses to the pandemic and maybe tell us, you know, what Canada might be able to learn? I'm sure my answer would have been different if the meeting of yesterday in Brussels had been a, a failure instead of a positive result. It took them a lot of difficult talks to come to this agreement. And the reason is, certainly the pandemic made it more complicated because um, the cost of this budget is much bigger than it would have been otherwise. The same for the deficit in Canada. We would not accept such a deficit if it was not for the cause of fighting the paralysis of the economy uh, as a consequence of our decisions to protect human beings before the economy. Uh, it was the right, the right decision, but at the end of the day, you have a new situation that you, you need to cope with regarding budget and the economy. The same in Europe, and it makes the negotiations about their budget more difficult. Uh, and especially in a situation where the EU is quite in, had the, has a difficulty of balancing its institutions. Uh, you see the EU since 1990 now, 1999 has a common currency, the euro. And a common currency without having the same uh, strong political union. You have the currency union, but the political union and the banking union is not as, as strong. Um, the EU gave to itself an institution that is the institution that the Federation enjoys, that is a common currency. But the EU is not a federation. It's still an association of sovereign states, each of them having a veto on the common institutions, including the EU budget. So, Elena, to understand, it's like if in Canada, to negotiate our budget and our uh, COVID recovery plan, provinces had a veto on the federal budget. So each province may say no, and then we need to, to do something else. We need the consent of every province to have a federal budget. I ask you how long it would take for Canadians to negotiate a budget. I hope that that's not a situation that we would find ourselves in. That certainly... Um... No, and, but it's a situation in which the EU is. And there are 27, 28 when the UK was there, 27 now. 27 member states, each of them having a veto on every key decision, including the budget. So when yesterday they succeeded, at least the heads of states will see if each parliament will accept after that. It's like if in Canada, not only the, the premiers and the prime minister need to agree, but also each legis legislative assembly and the House of Commons of Canada and maybe the Senate too would have to, to agree. So uh, it, it, the EU has a disbalanced uh, institutions. Despite of it, they have been able to negotiate a budget for the next seven years and a recovery plan. So they are very, very pleased by that. And it's, it's good news because the EU 
for Canada is a strong partner. At the moment where we have difficulties uh, with the U.S. administration of today, uh, and very, in, for very different reasons, a lot of difficulties with uh, the regimes in China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and Iran, and let, let's go. At least we need to have a strong relationship with the EU, but for that you need an EU. And so the, the, the agreement of yesterday uh, to go ahead with a recovery plan for the pandemic and a seven years budget is a good news for the for Europeans, of course, but also for Canadians. Ambassador, you, you alluded to the tense relationships with certain countries, you know, especially China, the US in this particular administration in this context. Is there a role for Canada on the world stage, especially as many countries continue to grapple with governance and economic challenges? Oh, yes, I, I'm confident. Um, I'm sure of it. I have no doubt uh, that Canada is an important partner, a trustworthy partner uh, around the world uh, to, for the cause of democracy, uh, climate change, uh, human rights, minority rights, women rights, uh, and trade and progressive trade, inclusive trade. Uh, you see what a mistake it would be for humankind to choose between trade and progress. We need to bring them together, to have strong provisions in our trade agreements that promote um, better rights for workers, women, uh, better protection for the environment, food security, and so on. And Canada must be a partner for that around the world. Um, partner for fighting climate change, adapting to climate change, protecting biodiversity, be more exemplary at home. A lot of work needs to be done at home, but also to export our expertise about water management, forest management. There are so many things that Canada uh, should do. And in our relationship with the, the big powers of the world, uh, consider the EU as one of them, uh, very close to us. Canada may be, it seems to me, the, the most European of non-European countries who are very close to the values you see in Europe that are universal values. Um, our relationships with the US, I think, I uh, don't want to be partisan, but I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, despite all difficulties that we know, has been quite good to manage his relationship with President Trump. And Europeans uh, appreciate that and count on us to always work in this way. And if there is a change of administration in the U.S. after the fall election, uh, to make sure that the new president will start on, on good footing. Uh, the, one of the tasks that Canada has in the world, is not the only one, but is one of them, it is to help our American friends to understand that they are a great leader when they want to play with others, when they accept that it's better to go multilaterally than unilaterally. And it's certainly something that Canada will continue to do. And our European friends especially count on us for that. So certainly, Ambassador, opportunities for Canada to have, Canada to have impact on democratic fronts, on trade, uh, on, on rights, and certainly as being perhaps a, an ambassador between, uh, between uh, both sides of, of the Atlantic. 
Ambassador Dion, thank you so very much for making the time to speak to us today. Your experience from your time as a professor, as a distinguished minister, and now as ambassador, I'm sure we could go on for, for quite a while longer. Thank you very much for, um, for making the time for this conversation today. Elena, it was a pleasure for me. Thank you so much.